0: on Radio Catskill. Hi, this is Jeff. I'm your host on Radio Catskill's brand new show, Electric Mountain, bringing you the very best of electronic dance music from back in the day to today. As a special treat, I'll feature a guest DJ every week spinning a continuous set, bringing their unique style. Come dance with us each and every Saturday night from midnight to 2 a.m., kicking off on February 17th. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. Farmartscollective.org, from the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. My guest today is world traveler, former record plant sound engineer, and environmentalist Gray Russell, a frequent visitor to the Catskills. We'll be talking all things rock and roll, climate change, composting, and so much more. Here we go. Welcome to Catskill Character, Gray.
1: Thank you very much, Donna. I'm, I'm excited to be here I'm a fan of the Catskills, and I'm a fan of Radio Catskill, and, um, and your show, Catskill Character. It's a thrill for me to be here with you.
0: Oh, thanks, Gray. You know, you have been on the move since you were a teenager. After you graduated from high school, you went on a summer student work program to an archaeological dig in England. In college, you spent a semester in France, and after you left college, you got a job working in a warehouse in Rotterdam you 've worked as a waiter in Paris, and in fact, you worked at the largest jazz club in Europe, Ronnie Scotts in London. How'd you get that job
1: when i uh I ended up in London, I knew about the famous Ronnie Scotts Club, and I walked in and I applied for a waiter 's job and they said yes I, I think because I was American. you know I was a re- real American to them, jazz being an American art form. And I ended up spending a year there, uh, and I got to see legends like Ella Fitzgerald, Stan Kenton, Elvin Jones, Art Blakey, Oscar Peterson, and Zoot Sims, and also um, pop artists like Judy Collins and Joan Armitrading and Maria Moldauer. Um, It was it was a terrific experience working with the musicians, and and one time one of the musicians there for one of the opening acts asked me if I'd like to see them during the daytime in a recording studio where they were making an album. And so the next day I went to meet them and see what it was. I'd never been to a recording studio. I didn't know anything about what it was. And uh, there the magic was revealed for me. It was uh, it was just blew my mind to see how they set up the microphones and run the tape machines and make recordings.
0: So actually what you're saying is, I got to just interject this. I am so jealous. When you rattled off that list of performers that you saw, I'm just so jealous. You are a lucky man. Yeah. But getting back to my question, being exposed to the music business in that way, you decided you wanted to work in the recording industry and you went to two different schools to get certified.
1: Yeah. I decided I was going to leave London. I was going to go home and learn about recording engineering. I enrolled at uh, the Institute of Audio Research, which is still the, the number one audio technical school in, in the country. It's in New York City. And another school called the Recording Institute of America, which was in a in a recording studio, and there it was sort of hands-on. They showed you how to coil cables and run, uh, run the console and the, run the tape machine and set up microphones. So the combination of studying the physics of sound and then also a little bit of hands-on, uh, I got two certificates from both of them. And I made a resume and sent them out to every recording studio in New York City to see what I might find.
0: And that leads us right to the story of how you got your start at the record plant. This is classic. Would you mind telling the listener?
1: Well, yeah. um, Again, I thought I might find a job at a little four-track studio in Yonkers someplace. But about three weeks after I sent those resumes out, I got a phone call asking if I would be interested in coming into New York City, to Midtown, to the record plant studios for an appointment to meet the owner, Roy Sakala. Now, I, I had spent my younger years studying albums and album jackets and album liners. And I, I, I always looked at not just the artists and the musicians' names, but I looked at the names of these producers and engineers and recording studios. And so I knew about the record plant. I, was, I couldn't believe it. And I knew Roy's name. And uh, so they, they asked me, can, can you come, come in to, to meet the owner? Uh, and I said, sure. When should I come in? They said, well, you could come in tonight at five. Uh, we're just getting started work then. And you can, you can get to, to meet him. So I said, great. And I hung up the phone and then I thought, what kind of a job begins at five o'clock in the, in the (laughs) evening? Um, but I realized that was the world I was, uh, I was about to get into. And, um, he uh I lived through that session and um and basically kept working there for uh for free for about a week and eventually I went to the office and asked are do I get hired here or how does it work and i be- I became a gopher uh, which means uh like you go for this go for that go pick up a sandwich for the manager go uh, go pick up the laundry for the uh, engineer et etc and eventually I was a tape librarian and during that time I would help the assistant engineers set up and break down their recording sessions to help them. But when, when I did that, you see, they were, they were showing me what they did and I would ask them about this microphone and what is this, how do you use this? And they showed me how to, uh, how to uh, clear the, the consoles and, and, uh, and you know, what the pan pot is, how you go from left to right and the faders and, and eventually one of the guys got sick and, um, And so the managers called me in and said, you're going to be the assistant on this session. And that was it. Then I was an assistant engineer. And within the next few years, I worked, this was a big studio that, um, uh, a lot of was very, very busy every day. Uh, and over the next few years I ended up working with, um, artists like Bruce Springsteen and the E street band and Tom Petty and the heartbreakers kiss. And, uh, and really the, was exploding in in uh, in the mid 70s in New York City was the punk uh, artists. I worked with Television and Blue Oyster Cult. I engineered a Patti Smith Group record, uh, their Easter LP, which included their hit song Because the Night. I got a platinum album from working on Blondie's Parallel Lines, which included the gold single for Heart of Glass, and uh, and The Godfather, Lou Reed. I even worked with the Clash. Mm.
0: Unbelievable. I, you know, just to get back to that story about getting your job at the record plant, the thing that cracked me up about it when you first told me was that Roy Sakalan never said to you, you're hired. He just kept saying to you, you can come back tomorrow.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I, mean, uh, and I was told years later, or I was told months later that, um, you know, the reason that uh, he he hired me was he saw my resume and with all of my certificates from these recording institutes, et cetera, and even my travels and working in the, with the jazz, jazz artists, what he saw was my address at the top. And it turned out that he lived in my town. He lived just a couple of blocks away. And, uh, and that, that was, that was, and he said, he said to the manager at the time, Maybe we could. Maybe this guy. Uh, maybe he wants to ha- have his life ruined. We'll we'll bring him in and see if he wants a job, and and that's what worked.
0: Have his life ruined? Well, it is. It is kind of rough on the uh, system, because like you said, you start working five o'clock. You could go until uh, four o'clock in the morning.
1: Yep, right? it was uh, it was very, all hours. Yep, uh, all hours. Many I did many twenty four hour days. Yep.
0: Well, you know, Greg, there are so many stories that you could tell us, but I thought I'd focus on two important events that happened while you were working at the record plant. We all have stories, those of us who are old enough at least, about where we were when the blackout of
1: July 1977 occurred, but your story is certainly unique. Yeah. Yeah. When that happened, that that summer, that summer day, that evening, uh, I was uh, I was in um, one of the control rooms, Studio C, and the suddenly the tape machine slowed down and then it came back up to speed. But then the lights went out and I went out on the balcony there uh, and looked out and I saw all of the lights in Manhattan come back on and then block by block, they all went out and they stayed out. So we knew that it was a big blackout and we couldn't take the elevator. I was on the 10th floor. So we walked down. It turned out that Herb Alpert was down the, down the hall in another room. So he and I, and his session and my session, we all walked down 10 flights to get to the lobby. And in the lobby was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band. They were, they had been recording their, their album uh, darkness on the edge of town in, uh, in studio B and, They're sitting around playing guitars because we didn't know if the power was going to come right back on and if we could all continue working. But after about 40 minutes, we decided everybody said, let's we're going to shut it down and we're going to go home. And Jimmy's engineer, uh, um, I'm sorry, Bruce's engineer was Jimmy Ivine, who I had worked with before. And uh, Jimmy Ivine asked me, great, you know, I know you're out in Jersey do you want to stay here in the city? You can come up with me to the hotel. I'm staying with the band up at, uh, up in central park West. And I said, that'd be great, Jimmy. So, um, you know, the East street band and Bruce, they, they were certainly celebrated for their born to run record, but they weren't yet sort of like superstars. And so we were able to walk up together in the, in the darkness up eighth Avenue uh, with the Holy e street band Several times people came up and asked Bruce for for autographs, but um, that was it. So that was a wild night, and and, uh, and, uh, I ended up spending the next day with Bruce and Jimmy uh, walking around uh, Central Park. Unbelievable.
0: And then you also have a very unique experience when John Lennon was shot and killed. Would you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, John and Yoko were upstairs recording and I was downstairs, uh, working with, uh, Meatloaf and they were around for the better part of two weeks, uh, recording songs of one of Yoko's songs really. And one evening, you know, I saw them all the time. We'd sit around and chat. We were watching TV in our little sort of our lobby and going up and down the elevator with John was such a big thrill to me. But, um, that one evening, somebody came into my control room and said, uh, "You know, they say John's been shot." And I said, "No, he's he's upstairs." And they said, "No, their their session ended." And then uh, another report came in, and said, "Yes, he actually was was shot." And then um, at one point, I stepped out of the control room, looking at the TV, and they announced that he was not only shot, but that he had been killed. And that just blew everybody's mind. All four rooms came to a grinding halt, stopping the music. And I, I cried a lot that night. It was really a, a difficult time.
0: Yeah, I cried a lot, too. I feel you. Uh, so it all happened for you at the record plant, which was a very unique recording studio itself. I mean, it was the same as many other studios, but it had a
1: unique quality. Would you just give the listener a quick idea about that? Yeah, it was a complex of four rooms and uh, four different recording studios, but the main thing about the Record Plant it was the very first recording studio that was really built to be a comfort to a creative artist. Instead of before then all of the Beatles and Rolling Stones albums those were made in recording studios that were very clinical and the recording engineers actually wore lab coats or uh, or jackets and ties they were sort of dressed up. The Record Plant was built really to be like a living room. In fact there was a common area that we could all have coffee and there was a jukebox and a uh, a couch and a television and uh it was meant to for everybody to relax and just the mood of it was meant to be very very casual so that the artist could could be, feel free to create and to come up with with beautiful creative stories and uh, and music.
0: Well of course just as with everything time changes things and Digital technology was introduced into the recording industry, and eventually the record plant closed, and you began to have to go out and find work as opposed to work coming to you. What was that period of your life like?
1: Well, it was it was tough, and, uh, and for a variety of reasons, the record plant was also closing. And, you know, my, my life was changing also. I was no longer in my early 20s. I was in my late 30s. And I had also been following uh, and learning about environmental issues all during that last 10 years. And they became not just an interest, but a hobby and then a passion. And I started to then rethink my life. Do I want to continue in an industry that's sort of a young man's game? Or is there something else that I could do with my, with my life uh, moving forward?
0: Great. That's a great lead into the second half of the show. So let's take a quick break here. You've been listening to Catskill Character with today's guest, recording engineer Gray Russell. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, this is DJ Chucks of Old School Sessions. Please join me and select the Sparky at our new time. 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. Saturday night. Old school, baby. Old school, baby, old school, baby. Old That's Old School Sessions, right here on WJFF, 8 to midnight, Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill.
1: This is Thane Peterson, host of Living Jazz. Saturday at noon, I bring you two hours of the very best of the current jazz scene, along with a little bit of classic jazz thrown into the mix. It's wonderful music that will warm your heart and soothe your soul. Join me for Living Jazz, Noon to Two Saturday, only on Radio Catskill.
0: Welcome back to Catskill Character. If you've just tuned in, today's guest is Bray Russell, recording engineer and climate activist. In the first half of the show... Gray shared his journey to becoming a sound engineer at the iconic record plant in New York City where he worked with over 100 artists from Blondie to Bruce Springsteen and rubbed shoulders with the likes of John Lennon. Gray shared memories of walking in Central Park with Bruce the day after the blackout of 1977. In the second half of the show, we're going to focus on how Gray became a climate activist and continues to this day to work tirelessly for the planet. When we left you in the first half of the show, you had decided to start to look for something else as the music business began to shift. You were pulled toward the environment via your work with the New Jersey Environmental Federation, which I think now is called Clean Water Action, beginning as a phone canvasser, which lasted for about two months. And then you were asked to be manager and you eventually began to do community organizing with the focus on stopping the building of new incinerators in Mercer County. You were working on the issue of solid waste. When you were interviewed recently, you said this. 30 years ago, environment wasn't really a career. It was a movement, an issue. But, Gray, it became your career, your passion. Let's pick up when you began your work at the New York Botanical Garden.
1: Yeah, so in 1993, the New York City Recycling Program decided to expand from just bottles and cans and paper to include the organic portion of the waste stream, basically leaves and grass and uh, and certain kitchen scraps, basically a composting program. We think of New York City as very intensely urban, but actually the outer boroughs, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island have plenty of suburban homes with lawns, etc. And that is where the four botanical gardens in New York City are located. And the Bureau of Recycling granted those Uh, Botanic Gardens money to be able to run these composting programs and I applied there at the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx and I became the compost project manager for the whole borough of 1.3 million people and spent seven years there from 93 until 2000. Basically it was a sort of a new concept but we were working with homeowners and garden groups but also community gardeners which was a a burgeoning uh, group of community activists Improving their their communities in New York throughout New York City, we went into schools and brought worm bins in and taught taught kids about uh, about uh, decomposition and, and composting. And also, we built a compost back, uh, backyard composting demonstration sites, three of them throughout the borough, including right there at the New York Botanical Garden.
0: You know, Greg, it, you've done so much. It's really hard to get it all in in, in a half hour show. But I'd love for you to tell the listener about your work with, uh, first of all, Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Then there was your trip to Brazil to go to the World Cup, and you ended up going to the Brazilian rainforest. You also went to Haiti to train people to compost. And I don't want to forget the uh, 2006 fellowship grant you were awarded to study for three months at the Institute of Energy and Sustainable Development in England.
1: Well, two of those happened back to back, and they they really were very influential in in, uh, in giving me that direction from sort of a broader recycling-based environmental direction to really focusing on climate. One was Al Gore. I heard him speak. And he uh, was talking about his movie, Inconvenient Truth. But he was also explaining that he wanted to start to train activists to be able to understand the science of climate change and to be able to bring that message, the reality of climate change, to their communities. And I knew that's just what I wanted to do. So I became really one of the very first groups that he trained in Nashville, Tennessee. And I spent the next several years giving these presentations in and around my area of of New Jersey. I gave over 30 presentations to about 3,000 people. And that organization continues to this day. And secondly, the work that I did, I, I got this grant to go overseas and to be able to study energy efficiency and clean energy. I learned a lot there, and I brought that information back to my town where I was working and incorporated that into the programs I was doing as the sustainability officer for the township of Montclair, running their office of environmental affairs.
0: And what about your trip to the Brazilian rainforest?
1: Yeah, that was, that was a beautiful experience. Um, yes, I went down there because I'm a big soccer fan, a big uh, international football fan, and I went down to follow the U.S. national team for the World Cup in Brazil. But I made a point to fly into Manaus, which is right in the middle of the Amazon basin, and I hired an outfitter, and I spent several days. We actually uh, – uh, took a boat up uh, up one of the tributaries to the Amazon and then a, a, a paddle powered boat uh, for the last little stretch. And we spent three days in the jungle and then hiked into the wilderness there to do some exploring. And, um, and that was really a remarkable experience in my life and and, and a lot of fun as well.
0: Talk about hands on. You went right into the
1: rainforest to see what was
0: going on there. I wonder how much of what you saw is still standing, but we won't get into that.
1: Okay. Um,
0: Also, you went to Haiti
1: to train people to compost. That's pretty incredible. That's right. That my my the work that I had done at the New York Botanical Garden with the composting program trained me that uh, composting was not just for gardeners and for backyard uh, gardeners, but it was also a solid waste solution. And Haiti is plagued by still uh, terrible soils. They they ruined their uh, their soils there, and also uh, they have a tremendous garbage disposal problem. They really don't have much organized waste collection. It's often just thrown into rivers so by combining those two problems myself and, and another team teammate flew down there and spent a week with community activists training them on how you could do community composting which would reduce the amount of garbage that they're generating but also create a product that would improve their soils and make it more uh, arable and able to grow uh, to grow food
0: oh that's that's fantastic gray. You did mention that you are the sustainability officer for Montclair, New Jersey and you've been doing that for the last 20 years. I, be- I believe actually you were the first in the state on the municipal
1: level. That's That's perfect, right. Yep. right. Yep. Yes.
0: Would you please tell the listener about
1: the 3 Es and the 3 Ps? Yeah, so sustainability basically is a three-legged stool. It means not just looking at the environmental Impacts of any process or any action, but looking incorporating also the economic and the equity impacts. So that's the environment, the economics, and the equity, equity or justice. We call them also the three P's, which is people, planet, and profit. And basically, that is the way that corporations and and municipalities and uh, and any any entity looks at decision making and policy making is to incorporate all three of those elements. So if you want to try to solve a problem, an environmental problem, but it's going to cost a lot of money, you're going to have a a long way to go. It's going to be a hard road to hoe. But if you can figure out ways to do things that actually help the bottom line, and as well as improving the environment or protect the environment, and also are more just, fair, or equitable, it's, it's, it's an easier way to get to get work accomplished and that is a lot of what we've been doing in Montclair and around the state and that's that's spreading all over the country Uh, you know colleges teach sustainability this you know you can get a master's at sustainability now
0: yeah that's amazing isn't it I mean it it wasn't even a course when you started
1: that's (laughs) correct
0: you just retired, and I'm hoping to see you up more in the Catskills now that you retired. I know you support Catskill Mountain Keeper, one of the many wonderful organizations up here. You'd probably love
1: to do some work with them. I, I would. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Catskill Mountain Keeper. I've been a supporter of theirs for several years. I happen to know uh, their their director, Ramsey Adams, from uh, the work I was doing in the Bronx. Uh, he was down in the Bronx in those, in those days, back in the 90s. And the work they've done to stop fracking, I think, is, is really admirable. And I, I would love to uh, continue to work with them. I'm also a big hiking fan, and I've hiked up in the Catskills, and I hope to be able to return up there and do some more walking in the woods in that beautiful countryside.
0: Great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you when you do that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so
0: I, I just have one more question to ask you, and it's the same question I asked Josh Fox when he was on the show. With all you know about the degradation of the environment, with all that you've seen, the frustration of the Trump years when so much of the work that had been done was trounced, with all of that, how do you stay positive and continue to do the work? How do you not fall prey to climate anxiety and just become paralyzed?
1: Well, you know, you're right that it is a real thing, climate anxiety, and it is difficult sometimes but I will tell you that you know I, I've learned so much about the natural world around me, and and I and I observe so much that um, I I am uh, I'm I've inspired by it, and it, and it helps me um, continue my work. And the people in Montclair were also very appreciative of the accomplishments that the Office of Environmental Affairs did. But beyond that, <clears throat> I am. I often think I'm actually addicted to inspiration and I, I feel like I'm moving through life, uh, walking through life, pulled forward by awe and that is what keeps me this beautiful world that we have and the beautiful flora and fauna, you know, the, the biosphere that we live in uh, needs that protection and we still have an opportunity to, 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 save, to save ourselves and to save the planet and that is what keeps me going.
0: Gray, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for all you've done. And please, the Catskills are calling you. Come back soon.
1: Thank you, Donna. And thank you, Radio Catskill. I just love, uh, I love this show and I love, uh, uh, I love the Catskills.
0: This has been Catskill Character with today's guest, climate activist and someone who really knows how to rock steady, Gray Russell. More information about Gray can be found by simply Googling Gray Russell, Montclair, New Jersey. Catskill Character is on every Saturday right after Farming Country. Tune in then for more conversations with fantastic characters of the Catskills right here on Radio Catskill. I'm Donna Fellenberg. Thanks so much for listening. Support comes from Jeff Bank, Sullivan County's Community Bank, celebrating 110 years of service this year, offering deposit and loan products for all your banking needs. Member FDIC and an Equal Housing Lender, National Mortgage Licensing System and Registry Identification Number 405318. Jeff Bank, still banking strong. And support comes from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Hi, Angela
1: Page from Folk Plus I'm going to be away this week But my good friend Matt Baia My buddy from WERU in Maine Will be filling in Enjoy some of the songs he loves to play During Folk Plus this week So that's Sunday at 4 With visiting DJ Matt Baia from Maine Here on WJFF
0: Who saw Grace KG doing African American history during the month of February. Black History Month was originally created to fight ignorance and to prevent the continuation of misconception about black people and their history. So I'll be doing presentations on black history from then until now. So please check me out Tuesday on The Music and poetry. I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m., only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello.